All right. Well, uh, good morning. Uh, so my name is Marco. I am the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse Community Church. Man, if you're new, welcome. Uh, I love that you're here with us this morning. I'm glad that y'all are here uh, with us. We, we find ourselves in uh, the book of James about four weeks ago now, but it's going by pretty quickly, I think. Uh, about four weeks ago now, we started a new sermon series uh, titled Faith in Action as we walk through uh, our time or our study in the book of James. And so if you have a Bible with you, whether it's uh, something that you load on your phone or something that you open uh, in the hard copy, go ahead and go to James chapter 1 verses 19 to 27. And so uh, by way of introduction, we're going to unpack a lot today. James has a lot to say say in this section. In addition to that, he's also going to be closing out this chapter. Uh, next week, we'll be jumping into chapter two, and, and that's a whole nother conversation then. Uh, so, so here's kind of where we're headed. Let me, let me give you an idea. It's not having many brain farts, but let me, let me give you an idea of where, where we're headed. Whether you are a parent, whether you've been or are a musician or an athlete, uh, a couple of things are expected out of you, right? A couple of things are expected out of you, and, and if, let's use the analogy of an athlete. If you've ever been an athlete, uh, before you go to your game or your match or whatever it is that you're going to go do, remember, this is a way of analogy. So if you're like, I've never done sports in my life, insert music, insert art, insert parenthood, whatever your thing is, right? One of the things that uh, my coach would always do to me as an athlete was before we went out and had our matches, I, I got to wrestle a little bit, and so uh, before we would have our matches, he would come up to me and he would remind me of all the training that I'd undergone, right? He would remind me of the drills. He would remind me of the different kinds of matches that we had in the past. He would remind me of pep talks that he's given me in the past. He would remind me of these small victories uh, uh, from practice and other matches and other tournaments. And he would just go on to remind me of experiences that I had had as a wrestler before I walked onto the mat. And the theme, and, and in fact, our main idea for our time today, and really as we continue our time in James, here's what it is. Identity determines activity. Identity determines activity. You see, the first thing my coach would do is he would, so to speak, set the stage for who I was as an athlete. He would go on to remind me of all the training, all the things that we had done, all the coaching, all the late nights, all the diet stuff. He would go on to remind me all of who I was before I went on to do what I was supposed to do, right? Wrestle, win, that whole nine, right? That was his biggest thing. And James is going to take a very similar approach as we continue walking through our time. In fact, James is going to continue this approach throughout the rest of our time, where he goes on to talk about identity determining our activity. Now, this is something that we've been talking about for the past couple of weeks. This is something that we have been talking about uh, for the past couple of months in previous sermon series. Um, but here's why identity is so important. I've shared this with you before. Identity is so important because you and I are quick to forget who we are. You and I are quick to forget what God has done, and you and I are quick to default to who we were. Do you catch me on that? Say that one more time. The reason you and I struggle with identity is because we forget who we are and so easily default to who we were. 
And James's encouragement, his exhortation, his challenges in this section and throughout the book is that identity determines activity. Who you are determines how you're going to live. What you believe determines how you live. That's essentially the main idea of our time here in James. That is the main idea of our time throughout the book of James. And so I use that illustration. Again, so you can insert whatever it is you want. Again, maybe you're a business owner. Maybe uh, you're a parent. Maybe you're a spouse. Whatever it is. In our time today, James is going to set the stage to remind us who we should be before telling us what we should do. Okay? So let me go ahead and read this section very quickly. I'll pray, and then we're going to dive in to verses 19 through 21. So this is what he says, starting in verse 19. He goes on to say, know this, my beloved brothers. Now, when he begins by saying, know this, he is telling you, I'm not only setting the stage, but I need you to remember this. Before I tell you anything else, I need you to remember this. He says, know this, my beloved brother. So he's talking to the church. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls." Verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts... He will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not brittle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, uh, before God the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we begin to look at your word, I pray that our hearts would be softened so that we would receive your word through the power of your Holy Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, I would invite you right now um, to do a work in our hearts, to break us as we are confronted with our sin, and also remind us of the beauty of the person and work of Jesus. I pray that we would be challenged and convicted during this time. I pray that we would be comforted and reminded of the work of Jesus, the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen. All right, here we go. Verses 19 to 21. So for the past couple of weeks, uh, here, well, let me start off differently, right? For the past couple of weeks, one of the things I've told you is that James jumps into this letter and is extremely practical, right? Uh, Like in the Old Testament, when you're looking at uh, Proverbs or Psalms or Ecclesiastes, that's referred to as wisdom literature because it's a lot of do this and don't do that. And if you look this way, you should probably look that way. And if, you know, he goes on to talk a lot about practicality. The book of James is the, the wisdom part of the New Testament, right? So that's why he's immensely practical throughout this entire book. And as an approach of that practicality, one of the things I've been doing for the past couple of weeks is giving you lists, right? Because James seems to kind of like lists. He'll tell you a bunch of things. And the first thing that we're going to look at is 
a list, right? We're going to look at a list. And so if you don't like lists because it reminds you of work, you're stuck. So James starts off by saying, know this, because he's setting the stage for what he's about to tell you. He's not telling you what to do. He's going to talk to you about who you're supposed to be, who we are supposed to be. That's why he says, know this, my beloved brother. So not only is he setting the stage, he's specifically talking to the church. And the first thing that he says, he says, let every person be quick to hear. All right. Now, I want you to put this in the back burner. What I want you to put in the back burner is identity determines activity. Keep that in the back burner because that's going to be the theme that carries us throughout this entire time. And so we're going to look at five characteristics, five personalities that James talks about in this one section, and we're going to look at their opposites. Because most of the time, sadly and unfortunately, we can associate ourselves much quicker with the opposites, Right? And so the first thing that he says, the first thing that he says is uh, to be quick to hear. The second thing is to be slow to speak. The third thing is to slow to anger. The fourth thing is to put away all filthiness and wickedness. And the fifth one, receive with meekness. Those are five different kinds of characteristics or personalities that James is going to walk through right now. So let's look at the first one. Let's talk a little bit about it. And then let's look at its opposite. So the first one is quick to hear. Man, do you have that friend that when you have a problem and you text them and you call them, not only are they there for you, man, but they want to hear your heart. They want to hear about what's going on. Tell me about your day. Why did it go so bad? What are you feeling? How are you feeling? Man, what's your affection for the Lord right now? They are just wanting to listen to you, right? And it's so encouraging to call them, right? Because you know they're either going to speak into your life or they're simply going to be present and listen to you right? Those are some really good friends. You see, the opposite of being quick to hear is someone who's a bad listener. So as much or as quickly as you can identify that friend, right, that is, that is a good listener, my question to you would be, are you a bad listener? Are you a bad listener? Here's what I mean by someone who's a bad listener. Someone who is a bad listener is constantly distracted. They are not present in that moment of need, and they have their own agenda, right? That's what a bad listener is. Someone who is constantly distracted by things that are going on around them. Someone that has their own agenda. Someone who is, again, distracted and distant from that present moment that they are not listening well or not listening at all. The question is, are you a bad listener? Are you the one who wants to just push your agenda? Are you frustrated at the fact that someone is talking to you about things that are going on? Listen to Proverbs 10.8. The writer says, The wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. Are you a bad listener? Number two, James says that we should be slow to speak. Someone who is slow to speak is cautious, is careful, and is considerate with what they're going to be talking about or with what they're going to say. They know that whatever it is they're going to share may be sensitive. Whatever it is that they're going to talk about may hurt, but they want to do it in a careful, cautious, and considerate way. That's someone who is slow to speak. That's someone who I would say is mature in their way of response. You see, the opposite of someone who is slow to speak, we can look at so many different things. The one area that we're going to look at is someone who's a gossip. Are you a gossip? Someone who is not slow to speak is very quick to talk about something else or someone else, but never address themselves. 
On top of that, you're the one that always wants to be talking. You're the one that always has something to say. There's always something going on and you want to talk about it and you don't care what you say because you gotta say it. There's a reason we laugh at all those different social media memes that talk about chisme, right? There's a reason we laugh about it because when someone has chisme, there's gonna be someone who wants to talk about it and there's gonna be someone who wants to hear about it. Are you a gossip? Are you a gossip or are you careful, cautious, and considerate in what you say and in how you say it? You see, some of you will mask gossip under the banner of prayer, and you're a fool, okay? You will say, whether it's masked in the environment of a community group, whether it's masked in the environment of accountability, whether it's masked in the environment or under the banner of Christianity, you'll say, man, we should pray for so-and-so. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you how we can pray for this individual. And you'll go on to share details that you shouldn't be sharing. All right? You will go on to say, you know what I heard about X, Y, and Z? Not only let me tell you my opinion, let me tell you what happened. Are you a gossip? Because if you are, you're not slow to speak. Right? You're not slow to speak. And this is what Proverbs says about that. This is verses, uh, excuse me, chapter 18, verse 2. He says, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. All you want to do is keep talking. All you want to do is keep talking about someone else. All you want to do is keep talking about something else. And in the church, in the church culture, we'll be really good about masking it under prayer and community group and, and accountability. And uh, man, I have this, this unspoken. Oh, really? Yes, let me tell you about it. You've just ruined it, right? You've just ruined it. And the number three, number three, he says to be slow to anger. He says to be slow to anger, right? Like, let me, let me start with what uh, scripture says about God the Father. This is Exodus 34, 6. And he writes, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is not only a merciful father, but he is slow to anger, right? He has a really long wick and it burns slowly. That's what it means to be slow to anger, right? That's what it means to be slow to anger. The question, however, is, do you have an anger problem? Do you have a short fuse? Do you have a short fuse? Are you that individual, man? One thing, one person, one situation, it just sets you off and you're ready to go. People literally walk on eggshells around you because they know you have an anger issue. And this isn't just generalities. We can get very, very, very specific. Your spouse, husbands, your wives walk around you on eggshells because they're freaking out that they might say something or do something. And the first thing you're going to do is get really, really, really angry. That's not the characteristic or the heart of the father. And so stop trying to mask it under some church cultured banner frustrates me when I hear husbands, when I hear wives walking around eggshells on their husbands. 
Kind of going on a side note, husbands, you're meant and called to be the pastor of your family, which means you lead them in the word of God, that you're called to be the provider, not just uh, in terms of finances, right? But you're also meant to provide for their needs, that you're also meant to be the protector. And that doesn't mean just physically. It also means that you protect them spiritually and emotionally. And some of you will say, man, I'm really good at being a provider. And that's as far as it goes. But when it comes to talking about things that you guys are wrestling with, that sets you off. That is not the character of God. And that is not the heart of the father. Let me just, let me just tell you that right now. You're missing it. You're missing it, men. You are missing it if that is you, right? On top of that, this does not excuse wives, that doesn't excuse wives. I've seen husbands walk around on eggshells in front of their wives because one thing happens and they're just going to cap them. They're just going to get on top of them and say, see, this is who you are. This is who you've been. You don't love me. And you continually remind them of who they are. And they're constantly walking on eggshells, not sure of how to lead and what to do when they're supposed to lead. And then we come back to being slow to speak and not being slow to speak. And the first thing we say is, I just want my husband to lead me. Well, <laughs> there's a reason he's not. He's freaked out. Okay? There's a reason he isn't doing it. That's sort of a side note. Maybe that was spirit-driven. Right? The fourth thing that he goes on to say is to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. We're going to chalk this up to righteousness. We're going to chalk this up to righteousness. So he says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. This is the person who understands that the righteousness that they have is not their own. That the righteousness, the capability of putting away all their sin, of taking, as Ephesians says, we, walk, we worked through that a couple of months ago. As Ephesians says, taking off the old self and putting on the new self. This is someone who understands that they have the righteousness of God, not a righteousness of their own. Okay? The righteousness of God, not a righteousness of their own. That's what he's referring to when he says, put away all uh, what rampant wickedness and filthiness. The opposite is someone who, again, you can attach several other things to this, but the opposite of that is someone who compromises. Someone who compromises. Someone who compromises can be looked at several, several different ways. One way for someone to compromise their conviction is to be okay with one sin but not the other. They're totally righteous about this. You shouldn't do this, and this is why you shouldn't do this. But when it comes to this other part of their life, they're cool with that. And the person who tends to compromise with their faith generally tends to be the person that compartmentalizes their entire life. So the Christian life is marked on Sundays. It's marked on Tuesday nights with community group. It's marked when I make coffee and I read my Bible every Monday morning. Uh, it's marked by, I don't know what else, right? I, I pray on my way to work. You have your Christian life and then you have your work life. Your work life constitutes maybe the employees that you have, the employer that you work for excuse me, the employer that you work for, the responsibilities that you have, and then you have family. Maybe you have your spouse, maybe you have your kids, maybe you even have your friends in there. That's compartmentalizing everything. And what you say when you compartmentalize everything, you begin to compromise, right? Man, the love in terms of who God is and what God has done for me applies in this Christian bubble. This is where it applies. Yeah, Lord, I love you. I praise you. Uh, I just desire to worship you. When it comes to work, not a soul knows that you love the Lord or follow him. And when it comes to home, 
family sees a completely different person. You compromise and you compartmentalize. That's the opposite of putting away all filthiness, all rampant wickedness. You compromise and you compartmentalize. The fifth and final person, he goes on to say, is someone who receives with meekness. Please don't confuse meekness with weakness. That's not what it means. Meekness, to be meek, means to be humble. Right? And I, better yet, let me just read that last phrase, because that last pa- uh, part of the, the, the passage, because it kind of goes into a bunch of other things. He goes on to say, uh, the person who receives with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Someone who is meek is someone who receives the word with humility. They receive the word with humility. And we're going to talk about that fancy word that he, talks, that he mentions on there where he says implanted. We're not going to ignore that. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Someone who is meek receives the word of God with humility. They receive the word of God with humility because they know they could do nothing to obtain their salvation. And so what God gifts them, the extension of his grace, they receive humbly. They didn't do anything to earn it. You did nothing to earn your salvation. And so we receive the word of God with humility. The opposite of that is someone who is prideful. We talk a lot about this, right? Someone who is prideful. Someone who maybe is the know-it-all. Look, I'm going to say it this way. I love my brother David. He's not here, so I can talk about him, right? (laughs) My brother David. So I've mentioned to you, I'm one of four uh, boys. My brother David is the third oldest, and uh, I love hanging out with him because it means I don't have to talk. And the reason I don't have to talk is because David knows everything, right? <laughs> and if he listens to this sermon, he knows it's true, right? And so he, he knows everything. Like there hasn't been anything, like when we first bought the house uh, that, we, that we just moved in de- into a couple of months ago, there hasn't been anything that I've told David, like, oh, I was thinking about doing this. And the first thing David says is, well, you know what you should do? You should do it this way. You should do it that way. And this is the kind of product you need. And be like, you're a graphic designer. How do you know about gardening? Right? Like he'll go on to talk about just all these different things, right? We'll talk about, uh, hey, we wanted to do this for, I don't know. We'll talk about like going to the range. And he'll say, well, there's specific kinds of ranges. What kind of ranges do you want to go to? The reason there's a specific kind of range is because you need to determine the kind of style you're going to be training for. And it's like, David, 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 shut up. <laughs> right? So I love, I love, love, love my brother, but there is not a topic, I think, in the world that he doesn't know something about. And so I use that analogy uh, because not only do I love him, but I use that analogy because it might describe you. It might describe you that you don't receive the word with humility. You're the know-it-all. Man, you know it. You've heard it. You got scripture memorized. You know the books of the Bible. You know the authors. You got all that jazz downloaded into your brain. So you got a ton of knowledge, but you have no transformation. Cool. Awesome. Way to go, right? That's what he's referring to. 
Someone who is a know-it-all, someone who is incredibly prideful, does not receive the word with humility. And as he continues and he moves on, he says, receive with meekness the implanted word. Why that word is so important, why it's so vital, is because the word was implanted in you. That means that God, in his mercy and his grace, extended and planted that word in you. I don't care how intelligent you are. When it comes to the word of God, receiving it with humility means that God the Father, through the Son, has implanted that into your heart. He has implanted that into your heart, right? It is not something that you've done. In addition to that, and the encouraging part about the implanted word is that it's permanent. It's permanent and it's inseparable. He put it in your heart and in your life, not randomly, but purposely, right? And so it is inseparable. Additionally, when we're looking at the implanted word, what that means is that the word has taken residency up within a believer. That means that the word, if it's implanted, it has taken root in your life and check it, it has taken root in your life and you're producing fruit. Now, if you're new, right, and I'm using language like producing fruit and you're like, what does that mean, right? Uh, let, me, let me just uh, kind of shine it this way, Okay. How do you know an orange tree is an orange tree? Right? Yeah, it makes oranges. It doesn't make apples, right? It makes oranges, right? It produces fruit so you confirm that it is an orange tree, right? That's a pretty simple analogy, okay? For the Christian, right? For the Christian, the exhortation here is that if the word has been implanted in you, it's going to take root and it will produce fruit. Fruit is obedience. Obedience to God in light of his word. Obedience to God in light of what he has done. And that's the mark of a Christian. Evidence, fruit, obedience, whatever you'd like to call it, those are the marks of the Christian, For the Christian who says, or for the individual, I should say, who says, man, I believe in God, Uh, I've received his word, but yet there is no evidence of fruit in their lives, I would question that. And that might be some of you here. Some of you will say, man, I believe in God. I've gone to church my whole life. I get it. Man, my mom gave me my first Bible at 10 years old. That's cool, homie. That's cool. Is there fruit? Is there fruit in your life? That's how we're going to look at the genuine side of faith. Is there fruit in your life? Fruit or obedience or evidence of grace, whatever you want to look at it, fruit is a result of who we are. Remember, identity determines activity. Identity determines activity. Okay? And so that's his exhortation. Listen to uh, Jeremiah 31, uh, excuse me, 31, 33. God writes, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Check it. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Receiving the word of God is something that is continual. It's not a one-time event. Don't tell me you got it and that's it. It's something that is continual. Fruit is ongoing. Obedience is ongoing. It's not a one-time event. It's not a one-time event. 
And so that's the stage that James sets up for us right now. This is who we ought to be. This is who we ought to be. So know this. This is who we ought to be. We ought to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. We're to put away all filthiness and wickedness. We're to receive the word with humility. That's who we ought to be. Now, some of you are super practical. And then he jumps in to the practical. He jumps into the practical. And he goes on by starting. This is verse 22. He starts off by saying, So be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That's how he opens up, and then he gives a pretty cool analogy regarding marriage. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Let me tell you what James is saying from the beginning, and then we'll begin to break everything down just like we normally have been. Okay? Here's what James is just just saying. He is saying, because you're hearing the word of God, maybe because you're even reading the word of God, does not mean that you're actually doing the word of God. Feel me on that? That's what he is saying. In verse 22, that's what he's getting at. Just because you're hearing it, just because you're even reading it, doesn't mean you're actually doing it. Right? Doesn't mean that you're actually doing it. In fact, we can listen to the words of Jesus in Luke eleven twenty-eight, where he says, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. The problem with only being a hearer is that this individual who doesn't need anyone will soon find themselves alone. The individual who's only a hearer and doesn't need anyone else will soon find themselves alone. And James gives the result of this. And he says that the result is self-deception. That's the result. The result is self-deception. Now, self-deception is when you allow yourself to believe that you know enough when you allow yourself to believe that you've changed and you allow yourself to believe that you don't need others. That's what self-deception is. Self-deception is going to be for the prideful, for the religious. They're the ones who will say, man, I know enough. I know this stuff. I'm good to go when it comes to the scriptures. I'm good to go when it comes to what God has said. I could tell you about the Greek Man, let's look at the Hebrew on this. You know what? In fact, since we're reading James, why don't we look to uh, Jewish literature? Man, they're the ones who love to study. They're the ones who are increasingly growing in information and in their intelligence. And because of that, they've convinced themselves that they've changed. Man, I used to not know this stuff. Now I know a lot about this stuff. And because they've convinced themselves that they've changed, now they've convinced themselves that they don't need others because other people just don't get it. In fact, people need me. Right? And the thing about self-deception, if you're one who is deceiving yourself, it's something that you don't recognize. It's something that others recognize in you. The question is, are you going to receive it with meekness? Right? Are you going to receive it? The person who is self-deceived, the one who has deceived themselves, excuse me, themselves, right, is the one who can't see it. 
They can't see it because to them, remember, they've convinced themselves that they know. They've convinced themselves that they've changed. They convinced themselves that they don't need others. Others need them. And so they're never going to see it in themselves. And so it requires others to speak into their life. The question is whether or not they're going to receive it. And if this is you, if this is you, James talks about it. James gives you an analogy of what that looks like, right? The analogy he goes on to say is he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. This is what he is saying. When you look in the mirror, if you are deceiving yourself, when you look in the mirror, right, the, the, the key here isn't necessarily the mirror itself, it's what the mirror reflects, right? And the mirror is going to reflect you and everything you are. And so you're going to see these things. You might even see these flaws. You might even see things that you need to repent of. You might even see things that should change. And you walk away from the mirror unaffected by what you saw. That's what he is talking about. You look in the mirror, you're like, man, I need to change this. This needs to happen. I need to work on this. I get it. These are things I need to do. You walk away from the mirror unaffected by anything that you saw in the reflection. So when it comes to change, when it comes to repentance, that's not present in your life. That's what he's referring to. That's what he means by someone who looks into the mirror. Someone who is unaffected, unaffected by what they see. They've received a lot of information, but we haven't seen any transformation. Follow me on that? And, and, and let me let's say it this way. For some of you young guys, and it's funny because I could say that, and I'm not really that much older than you, right? Um, early on, and, and, and I want to look at this from a, from a place of academics. Early on uh, in, in my walk with, with Jesus, um, I quickly learned that uh, I, I could read a lot of information quickly. And so uh, it went from reading my Bible to wanting to learn about systematic theology. It went from wanting to learn about other doctrines. It, wanted, it went from me wanting to learn about other theological concepts. Now, none of this is bad. You know, I think it's incredibly healthy. And a friend of mine once told me, as I was beginning to tell him everything that I was learning, he went on to say, he grabs his Bible and he says, before you start reading any of those books, you need to finish this book. And his point was that I was um, growing in a ton of knowledge, uh, but there wasn't any transformation in my life. I could be an evangelist for the Greek and Hebrew, but yet I wasn't an evangelist for Jesus. I could talk to people and even guys in the church and we could talk about deep theological concepts and really uh, old school doctrines and things that have shaped us to who we are now, but yet I hadn't seen anybody become a Christian in several years. No one at work knew that I loved Jesus. Um, and I was, I was looked at as a, I mean, I was looked at as a jerk, you know. So my encouragement to you is if you're that guy or you're that individual right? And you haven't finished reading your Bible and you don't have others speaking into your life, drop those other books, finish reading the Word of God, and let those other men or women speak into your life. Because what's going to happen is if you decide to increase in intellect and in academics, 
particularly in the realm of theology, right? Particularly in the realm of theology, oftentimes what happens is that you begin to argue philosophically and not biblically, right? Because you're all about knowledge, and yet there has been zero change or transformation in your life. So that would be my word of caution, specifically for the young guys. Ladies, that includes you too, right? Moving forward, James goes on to say, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Here's what he's saying. The one who looks to God's word and acts, so the one that knows God's word and actually does God's word, will be blessed. Let, let, me, let me tell you, God desires to bless you as a result of knowing and doing the word. As a result of knowing and doing the word, those two things are inseparable. They're inseparable. It's not either or, it's and. Knowing the word and doing the word. And he desires to bless you. That's what James goes on to say. Because oftentimes what tends to happen is as we become religious, or if we become religious, one of two things will happen. You'll either become legalistic or you'll begin to license the word of God. You see, someone who is religious or a hearer only, typically, generally, will become legalistic. They will add to the word of God and their relationship with God, their salvation is based on their performance. And so then they will put that on other people. And that is incredibly debilitating, right? Someone who is legalistic adds to the word of God, and bases their relationship on performance. Someone who licenses the word of God is someone who reads the word of God and then takes what they like and leaves what they don't. That's someone who licenses the word of God. And the reason they put the things that they don't like back is because it's offensive. The gospel is offensive. Just clear that right now. The gospel is offensive. We worship someone who was crucified. The gospel is an offense. So if you bank on your performance, on your intellect, and simply hearing the word without even doing it, you're going to fall into legalism or you're going to fall into licensing. You're going to add to the word of God and base everything off of your performance, or you're going to take what you like and leave what you don't like because what you don't like is kind of offensive. Right? That's what tends to happen when we're looking at individuals who are legalistic or those who license. We are obedient to the word of God, not to earn his love, but because he has already loved us through the person and work of Jesus. Obedience then is a result, or excuse me, obedience then is an impulse and a result of who we are. What we do as Christians is because of who we are. I'm going to say it all over again, right? Identity determines activity. Memorize that. Identity determines activity. And then James transitions into one last section. And this is where he continues to exhort the church, but then he gets a little pastoral. And he goes on to say, he closes by saying, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not brittle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, visiting orphans and widows in their afflictions, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So he mentions three things in this passage. 
And he concludes this section by presenting tests or marks of a religious person. The first one is an exhortation. The first one is a challenge. The first one is something where he's calling them out. He goes on to say that if someone considers themselves religious and they do not brittle their tongue but deceives their heart, their religion is worthless. The one who doesn't brittle his tongue means that their tongue, they don't have control over their speech and they have zero direction over their speech. Kind of like slow to speak, slow to anger, someone who does not brittle their tongue. The, the, the word brittle, and I'm horrible at this part, right? Because I don't necessarily know how to describe it. This is more of an illustration. Uh, if you've ever ridden a horse, right? If you've ever gone horseback riding, uh, the gear that they put on the horse's head, right? The, the, it's kind of like a chin strap, and then he has it across his, I guess, his forehead. I don't, I don't know what else you would call it, right? That's called a brittle, so that the one who's riding the horse can control the horse's head and can control where the horse is going to go, right? That's called a brittle. And so when he goes on to say that the one who does not brittle his tongue, it means that you have zero direction and you have zero control over your speech. That's what he's talking about. And so if that's you, if you find yourself religious, yet you have no control over your speech, you don't watch what you say, and you don't care how you say it, and you put it under the banner of religion, he says that your religion is worthless, and stop deceiving yourself. Stop deceiving yourselves. It means that you have not been transformed. If you cannot control what you say, and the direction of your speak, there is no transformation there. And your religion is worthless, right? If we want to go deeper into that, what he is referring to, especially when he uses the word brittle, he is referring to idolatry. That's what he's referring to. That your idolatry is in what you can do and who you are rather than Jesus, all right? That's what he's talking about. So that's the first exhortation. The next two he goes on to talk about are marks, uh, excuse me, are marks of God's people. He goes on to say, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is to visit orphans and widows in their afflictions. That's number one. So the one who cares for orphans and widows reflects the heart of the Father. Okay? So we've talked a lot about religious or religious people. We've talked a lot about individuals who are prideful. We've talked a lot about even us who uh, wrestle with all of these things. And what he goes on to say here is, if you consider yourself a religious person, if you consider yourself a religious person, then you should reflect the heart of God. You should reflect the heart of the Father. Because if you reflect the heart of the Father, that is a mark of God's people. That is a mark of God's people. So the first thing he says is to care for orphans and widows. Listen to Exodus 22, 22. He says, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Deuteronomy 14, 29 says, and the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow uh, who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you and all the work of a hand's Uh, of your hands that you do. Here's what he's saying. The mark of God's people is that you care for the helpless and the vulnerable. The reason he's specific to widows and to orphans is because those are the ones in this time that are the most and were the most vulnerable. Okay? 
These are the ones that are the most vulnerable. So that when he begins to talk about, man, what's a mark of a religious person? What's a mark? It's someone who reveals or reflects or exposes the character of the Father. And one of those things is that they care for the helpless. They care for the widows. They care for the orphans. They care for those who are vulnerable. They care for those who are in need. That's part of the mark of someone who belongs to God and someone who reflects the heart and character of the Father. Additionally, he goes on to say in that same thing that caring for the helpless reveals God's character. This is Psalm 68.5 where the psalmist writes about the Father. He's the Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God takes this kind of care so seriously that in Isaiah chapter one, he goes on to say that if we as God's people do not care for the helpless or the vulnerable, he will not accept our worship. You want to check it out? Go for it. It's Isaiah one. I think it's 10 through 17. Part of the mark of God's people in their obedience is that they reflect the heart of the Father. And what he is referring to here or what he points out here is that how we reflect the heart of the Father is by caring for widows, by caring for orphans, by caring for the helpless, by caring for those who are incredibly vulnerable. And the challenge here as we look back to Isaiah is that he says, I don't want your words. I don't want your sacrifices. If you're not doing this, I I won't even consider your worship. I won't even consider your worship. That's the mark of God's people. And the second thing that he says in that last, excuse me, in that last section, he says, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The Bible talks about the world in three different ways. The first time, or excuse me, the first one is when we hear the word world or when we read the word world, uh, sometimes it's referring to the entire planet Earth, all of the world, right? One of the other ways it talks about when we read the word world is when it's referring to a specific group uh, or set of people. The third one is when it refers to the culture that arounds us, that is around us, excuse me. Now we talk about like, oh, are you of the world? That usually means like, are you participating in the cultural things that are happening in and around you, right? That's what he's referring to here. When he says someone who's going to keep themselves unstained from the world, okay? Now, we're going to look at something really, really practical. Man, if you follow Jesus, if you love Jesus, if you belong to Jesus, let me say it that way, if you belong to Jesus, have you gone unstained in this world? No. And so reading that might be really, really hard for you to accept when you know you have so many stains. When you have so many stains on you. Right? And so let me give you an encouragement, and then we're going to look at some more scripture before we close off. The only way... The only way that we can remain unstained from the world is through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross where he absorbed our sin and exchanged his righteousness for our filth. Now, this is one of my favorite illustrations of that. This is Zechariah 3, verses 1 through 4. So listen to this. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. 
And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? This is my favorite part. Now, Joshua was standing before the angel. We know that Satan is there. He's standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Right? Let's look at this in terms of some practical application. Over the past couple of weeks, we've talked about temptation, or excuse me, last week we talked about temptation. We've also talked about trials. That in the midst of trials, you're going to find yourself with temptations, right? You will have even fallen into temptation. And then you're going to read something like what we see in verse 27 in James chapter 1, where it says that we are to keep ourselves unstained from the world. And you're just going to be reminded of what you did that you shouldn't have done, what you said and you shouldn't have said it. How you did something and you should have gone about it the whole, a completely different direction, right? And throughout that time, what's going to happen is that you're going to hear lies. Because what happens is, as we mentioned in the beginning, is you're going to hear lies because you're going to forget who you are and you're going to default to who you were. And when you default to who you were, you're going to hear voices and lies that say, yeah, that is really you. You are the adulterer. You are the liar, right? Right? You're the one who failed and dropped the ball. You can't do this. You don't have any value. She doesn't love you. He doesn't care about you. You're going to hear that particularly as you fall into temptation and as you stumble your way forward. You're going to hear those things when we forget who we are and we default to who we were. You did screw up. That was your fault. That's because that's who you really are. You haven't changed. Who cares that you've been coming to church? Yeah. There's a reason they don't love you. You're going to hear all of these different things in the face of you falling into temptation. And you're going to find yourself like Joshua. You're going to find yourself standing there filthy. You're going, to stand, you're going to find yourself standing there filthy, knowing you have nothing to offer. Satan's at your ear telling you that you really did screw up, and that's really who you are, and that's who you will always be, and nothing's ever going to change that, because otherwise you wouldn't keep falling into whatever sin you keep falling into. And you're going to hear that. Now let's look at the next section. Let's look at the next section. It says, now Joshua was standing there before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. I will clothe you with pure vestments. When you find yourself listening to lies that you are the liar, you are the adulterer, you are the one who doesn't love or doesn't care, whatever it is, right? The lie that you might be hearing is, man, that's really who I am, right? Or the lie that you're going to hear is like, this is what you really did, right? L- let me give you the encouragement here. That's true, right? Let's, let's be frank. That's true. We did do those things. And it doesn't end there. And That's why Jesus went to the cross. That's why Jesus went to the cross to absorb the sin of the sinner and exchange his righteousness. In other words, Jesus is saying, 
you have no righteousness of your own. So let me take your filth and let me give you my righteousness. Let me give you my righteousness. Let me give you redemption. Let me give you uh, uh, reconciliation and a relationship. Let me give you pure vestments that I put on you. You didn't put these on yourself. I put these on you. Church, when, when you hear something like James 1, 19 through 27, you can get really, I mean, I was, you can get incredibly convicted quickly in terms of like, oh my gosh, I really am a hearer and I'm not a doer, right? But let me remind you of something before we close. In Christ, if you belong to Jesus, in Christ, you are clean, in Christ, you are clean. Romans 8.1 says it, then therefore there is now no condemnation for those inside of Christ Jesus. You are, if you haven't heard it this week, hear it now. In Christ, you are clean. In Christ, you are clean. And so as we look to being hearers or being doers, we've heard the differences, right? Man, hearers will walk away. Doers will face and confront their sin with brokenness and repentance, right? Hearers will talk to you about the Greek and the Hebrew, but doers will actually care for the vulnerable and the helpless, right? I think my favorite one out of that list is that doers will uh, confront their sin with brokenness and repentance. Notice that being a doer doesn't mean you're perfect. You're going to drop the ball. But if we're doers, if we're going to be doers of the word, that means we're going to confront our sin with brokenness and repentance so that we would be reminded that in Christ, we, you, are clean. Identity determines activity. And that identity was given to us through the work of Jesus. And what Jesus did is that gave us redemption through his blood. In Christ, one last time, church, in Christ, you are clean. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we close our time, Lord, as we close our time, um, my prayer would be that that last bit, that in, in Christ Jesus, we are clean, that that would resonate loudly in our minds and in our hearts. That as we looked at different kinds of characteristics of who we default to, whether we're a bad listener, whether we're a gossip, whether we are uh, quick to be angry, Lord, in Jesus, we find ourselves forgiven. We find ourselves forgiven of those things so that we can move forward. And as we transition to a time of giving, this is where we give you our stuff. This is where we give you our stuff because in this we're saying that you're enough. In this we're saying that we're going to put our flesh to death and relinquish control of what we think we're in control of. That even things like finances wouldn't keep us from worshiping you. In addition to that, as we walk into a time of communion, this is where we give you our sin. 
So Lord, as we walk into these times, let us continue to worship you by giving you our stuff, by giving you our sin, being reminded that we have been saved by the blood of a king, by the blood of your son, Jesus. And finally, you give us a time to response in song and praise and in worship. May our voices be loud. May our arms be raised so that we would be reminded of what Jesus has done and who Jesus is so that we would be reminded of who we are, not who we were, so that we would be reminded of who you say we are and that would determine what we do as your people. We love you, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.